Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, well women. On the show this week, I interview Dr. Marissa G. Franco, who's an enlightening psychologist and national speaker. She's known for digesting and communicating science in ways that resonate deeply enough with people to change their lives. She works as a professor at the University of Maryland, and she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment can help you make and keep friends. She writes about friendship for Psychology Today and has been a featured connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, The Telegraph, and Vice. She speaks on belonging at corporations, government agencies, nonprofits, and universities across the country. I'm so excited to have her on the show today. We discuss why friendships don't happen organically beating your personal fear of rejection, and why belonging is at the root of a real friendship. So this conversation is so good. I love talking to Dr. Franco. She comes at this topic from both an academic perspective and also very personal perspective. So I hope you get a lot out of it. I think after two plus years in the pandemic, um, this is a topic that is really top of mind for many people, deepening relationships and particularly platonic friendships. So as always, all the links and information are at wellwomanlife.com slash 298show. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. Join us in the Academy for community mindfulness practices and practical support to live your well woman life. I'm speaking with Dr. Marissa G. Franco this morning. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And I'm excited to talk to you about all things friendship and connection. But before we get into that, I just want to have you share with listeners, who are you in the world today? Yeah. Wow, what a question. So philosophical. Professionally, I'm a professor. I'm a licensed psychologist. I'm a New York Times bestselling author. You know, personally, I think I'm someone who's always looking to learn and looking to grow and looking to heal and looking to connect with people and try to be a healing force of connection for others. Nice. Okay. And Your work in the world right now is very much around the book that you published and that we're going to talk about today. How did that, how did that come about? Can you just give us the short version of like, why now? Like, why are you writing this and why now? Mm, So funny because, um, I didn't know this whole pandemic thing was going to happen. I decided to write my book on platonic, on how to make and keep friends before the pandemic. Because for me, I went through these breakups. I felt really bad. I started this wellness group with my friends. We met up, we cooked, we did yoga, we meditated. And it felt so life-changing, not because of the wellness per se, but just being around people who I love, who loved me every week. 
And it really made me question some of the beliefs that I had that really impeded my ability to feel healthy and whole without a romantic partner, which was, you know, the idea that you need a romantic partner to be lovable, that the only love in your life is ones that you can get through romance. And then I think that made me look at my friends and really discount all the love that they gave me. And so I felt like that was a larger cultural issue and that when it comes to friendship, there's gold under our feet, but we see it as concrete. So I just sort of wanted to be part of the culture change in elevating friendship so that it's not seen as such a second tier, second class, throwaway relationship. And giving hope to all those people out there who are (laughs) wanting to refocus instead of putting all of their energy into a romantic relationship. It sounds like you're offering this whole other path, like not to say you can't also find romantic love, but really opening up uh, the conversation to, to support people to look at their friendships and then pursue more friendships. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a message that can help single people and could also help people in relationships who have felt burnt out depending on one person for everything and have felt, you know, the stress that comes with that. And that is, you know, very much reflected in the research that when we get into fights with our spouse, it affects our release of the stress hormone cortisol, but not if we have quality connection outside the marriage. When I make a friend, I'm not only less depressed, my spouse becomes less depressed, right? And so there's this way that like, if we depend on a larger community of people, it centers us in these times of stress within our marriage. So we're better for our marriage. So I think, you know, it's this long truth that we've often buried, which is we need an entire community to feel whole. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting on the Well Woman Show, of course, I talk to a lot of women leaders, quote unquote, very successful women. There are sort of three things that everybody identifies as far as how they live their lives and they're able to do everything that they do. And one of those things is community. Not necessarily the word friend doesn't necessarily come up always, but it's always about community or connection with other women, actually, for for women. And those are the people that I talk to. Have you found a difference for women versus men in terms of how they uh, identify friendships and community and the need for that? Yeah. So I would say that, you know, friendship will benefit everybody regardless of gender. But what we tend to see is Women report more intimacy with their friendships in a given week. They're twice as likely to reach out for emotional support. They're twice as likely to express affection with their friends. So it's almost in a way that like women's friendships reflect more of what you see in a romantic relationship. There's a lot of vulnerability, a lot of affection, right? Whereas men's, the script is very different. Like when I hang out with my friends, we're companions who do activities together. When I'm with my spouse, that's where I'm vulnerable. That's where I share all these things about myself, right? And so these are obviously just trends and there's a lot of people who don't match the trends within their gender, but that's what we see more generally across the board that friendship is, there's more investment and commitment from women in friendship than there is for men. Yeah. And in the book, you talk a lot about the different attachment styles and we're talking about platonic how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. As we said earlier, newly on the New York Times bestselling list. So congratulations on that. But I wanted to ask you, how do the different attachment styles or type define friendship differently or do they? So like, if you can talk briefly about the three attachment types and then how do they define friendship? 
So one thing that I argue is that there's a difference between good company and good friend. A good company, someone whose time you enjoy, you like them as a person, but a good friend is an investment and a commitment to someone. I'm going to show up in your times of need. I'm going to celebrate you in your times of joy. I'm trying to make your life a little easier and lighter. And I think that is a very securely attached way of viewing friendship, secure attachment. You know, these are people that have had past relationships that have been healthy, trusting, close, so that facilitates them being able to continue to build close relationships in the future because they go into new relationships thinking that they can, that they'll be able to build intimacy, that people will like them, that they'll be trusted, right? So that's what I would say for the secure definition of friendship, for anxious attachment, These people tend to fear that people will reject or abandon them based on their past experience. So they go into friendships trying to move super quickly so that they can prove to themselves this person won't abandon me. We're so close. They tend to be overshare, right? Not just be vulnerable, but overshare. Uh, Their relationships tend to be very volatile because they tend to predict that they're going to be rejected even when they won't. So for the anxiously attached person, it's almost like friendship is a place to soothe me and to soothe my fears, right? I'm trying to use this friendship in a way that's going to make me help me soothe my fears of abandonment and rejection in some way. And then you have avoidantly attached people. Their past, they've learned they can't trust people. So they're like, they've become these super independent, self-sufficient people that say they don't need anyone. They tend to enjoy friendship less invest in friendship less, ghost on friendships more. You know, they don't work through problems with their friends. They just sort of end them. If you move away long distance and someone's avoidant, you won't, you know, really see them again. So their definition of friendship, I would say, is something more like the good company, right? Let's just meet up, keep it light. I like you, you like me, but we're not going to ask or expect anything of one another. Interesting. Okay. And so as listeners are are hearing you describe these three types and they're maybe identifying with one more than another. And of course, in the book, you go into a lot of detail and, and people can really identify uh, based on information in the book. How can people move from one attachment type to another if they are seeing that they're anxious or that they can't trust and they actually want to be to have more secure friendships. And so what would you say to, to people listening? Yeah. So I had shared this tip on my Instagram that there's this study that kind of looked at getting at people's attachment styles. And it involved sharing a story about you're sitting in the cafeteria, your friend comes up behind you and spills milk onto you. How do you interpret it? And it found that the securely attached people were like, oh, it's an accident. My friend's clumsy, whatever. And securely attached people were like, they're trying to humiliate me. I am going to seek revenge. And so you can see within that study that one big thing that differentiates the insecure and the securely attached is that the secure people are assuming people like them. They're assuming people have good intentions. The insecure people are assuming the opposite. People don't really like me. People are out to harm me, out to get me, right? So one of the big tips that I share for developing security, but also for making friends is to assume people like you. Because when researchers told people to make this assumption, they became warmer, friendlier, more open, and it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas anxiously attached people and avoidantly attached to some extent they tend to be very sensitive to cues of rejection. Each They handle it very differently, but both, both of them are very sensitive to cues of rejection. But what that means is that when they 
feel rejected, even if they weren't actually rejected, they reject people. They become cold. They become withdrawn according to the research and then people reject them back. So there's this way that whatever we think is true about the world becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it primes us to engage in these behaviors that make our assumption come true, ironically. Okay. And that's super interesting. And I, I get that. And what about folks who may have insecure attachment, not only because they didn't have trust and they have abandonment and rejection, but they are also part of different demographics or or people in society that have had a a harder time of things. Yeah. Uh, Like women, like, like people of color, um, like poor people. I mean, how, how do you, how do you see that playing into your, your work here? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it requires us to be more intentional about our company, right? Like one way to be secure is to find other people that are secure, right? Because if someone is avoided towards you, pulling you away, doesn't have your best interests at heart, it is adaptive to be um, more suspicious of them, right? I would argue that most people are not untrustworthy and out to get you, but for those that are, right, it is adaptive to be more suspicious and to, to keep them at a distance. So I would say for people that are from marginalized backgrounds, being intentional about connecting with people that you feel like do have your best interests and who you can feel secure around. When you go through an experience of marginalization, I'll speak for me personally, but also according to the research, right? You begin to anticipate rejection all the time from people that have that group. So like for me, you know, as a woman of color in academia, being the only black woman and experiencing a lot of racism, racial slights, then feeling like I can't trust any of these white professors, like they're all going to be out to hurt me. But what I would say to myself now is that, you know, trauma or stress tends to generalize, right? So if if you go through a really like hurtful experience with one person, you will tend to generalize it to all people that share that identity. And so what I would have suggested to myself is to maintain nuance because the truth was in that environment, there were white professors that were safer, that were you know, wanting to connect with me that weren't the ones who made these microaggressive comments, but I became closed off to everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I needed to maintain that sense of nuance still so that I could still seek and form connections and not be so isolated. So I think it takes a more rigorous discernment process, but it also takes reminding ourselves that hey, not everyone from this group is like the person in this group that hurt me. So who yeah. in this group am I Am I going to be able to trust? Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. It does take, uh, it is, it's harder work. It's just it's harder. It's like, and that's, that's a common theme for all marginalized community is that it, it's just, we have to work harder at it. Um, whether it's being more intentional, being more rigorous, and so that that takes a lot more work. And I just want to recognize that for folks listening. So I'm talking to Dr. Marissa G. Franco, author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. And we will be right back. You're invited to join me for a brand new monthly group experience over in the Well Woman Academy. This is a monthly group that includes access to the full six-week course based on feminism, mindfulness, and the Well Woman Life Framework. It includes weekly groups coaching sessions with me, as well as office hours and a private Facebook group to share and grow. Don't get me wrong, this is hard work. But with these tools, you will easily find the time to do the course, get the coaching, and reach your goals 
else monthly. If you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing, waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety, lacking the energy you need to get everything done, stuck in some aspect of leading your team, procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or in a leadership role but second-guessing yourself constantly, I'd love to introduce you to the Well Woman Academy. It's for smart, high-achieving women changing the world who want to overcome anxiety, burnout, perfectionism, and insecurity. The result? You get to live your Well Woman life, a life of joy, ease, and abundance, even when things are tough all around you. Visit wellwomanlife.com slash academy to learn more. We're back on the Well Woman Show with Dr. Marissa G. Franco, author of Platonic, a New York best-selling author. Dr. Franco, we're going into a segment called Superpowers for Success. And this is where listeners get to know you a little bit better personally, as a woman, as a leader, as an author. And the first question I have for you is, what does success in life mean for you? Success in life means for me, choosing a life intentionally that reflects my personal needs and values. It's funny because I was thinking about this mantra that I wanted to take on the other day, having the integrity to always value myself and the consequences to handle the effects and impact of that. And so finding myself in spaces where I feel valued, where I can value other people, where I can connect with other people. And also I have a lot of agency over the things that I do. So I'm able to choose things in my life that really resonate with me, that make me come alive, right? That really fulfill me. Mm. And I'm assuming writing this book and getting on the bestseller list was part of that. (laughs) It helps. It really helps. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. And when did you know that you were really good at what you do? Oh, what a lovely question. (laughs) Just like a it's like the opposite of a backhanded compliment. It's like a front-handed compliment, right? Is <laughs> in a compliment embedded in this. When did I know that I was good at what I do? You know, it's hard to say because I feel like when I was a grad student, I think the people around me could see that there was something special about me. Cause like when we had the evaluations, it was kind of like Marissa's gonna change the field. But I didn't necessarily feel that way for me because I um you know, you only know yourself. Like if you're your only point of comparison, you can't really tell like, am I great? Am I not great at this? So that I think other people saw it in me before I really understood it in myself. Yeah, I think there's this way that it's just like, because it's very hard. It's, you know, talking through this in real time, but it's very hard to realize your own strengths because you're yourself, right? And so it's hard to have that external lens to be like, that's a strength or that's just, it just feels like who you are in some ways. So in some ways, when I get the feedback from other people, you know, I had an ex who was like, you're so disciplined. I really admire how you can follow through on things that you want to do, right? Or my agent, when it came to my, comes to my book, he's like, it's the best book that I've read all year. And so in some ways, it's like, it's more of an incremental experience of having people give you that feedback, I guess, um, that allows me to take this broader perspective that where do I stand in relationship to other people and that I can mark myself as someone who is, who is good at what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it often is wrapped up in external kind of validation, right? Because we need to hear that. And there's also these quiet moments internally when we just know, like, 
you know, you, you just, you absolutely know that you're onto something or that you're really rocking this talk, or you just finish the first draft of, of a chapter and you're like, that's it. I know it. Was there a, a moment like that for you in your career? I will say that I am in my career consistently in a flow state where my work doesn't feel like work anymore. And it feels exciting and I feel passionate and it kind of just moves itself. It's like I'm caught up in a force or caught up in a spirit. (laughs) And I I think I have a lot of moments of that. And that was writing this book for me, right? Like I was just so passionate about it that someone asked me like, how do you stay disciplined? Do you have to structure your day? And I was like, actually, no, it was just like the passion. Like I was so excited to, to write this book. I was so excited to to study the things that I was studying. It was so fascinating to me. It was so absorbing to me. And I guess it's like completely being absorbed. It's almost like a loss of of self, I guess, um, at the task at hand that I experience. where it's like, it feels like I'm connecting to something more spiritual, more mm-hmm. transcendent, that there's less, the, the ego kind of gets silent. And I think that's a sign that I'm really doing something that I should be doing. Yeah, in flow, like you were saying. And I think a lot of listeners can relate to that because I think a lot of people hit that energy and that excitement, but there are so many ebbs and flows that when you're, when you're in an ebb, <laughs> you're like, is this, is this real? How do I get back to flow? So yeah. Do you have, um, do you have like one thing that is a personal habit of yours that contributes to your flow or, or your well being, so that you can be in that state? Yeah. So a couple of things, it's reminds me of a tip for friendship that I share, which is like, Assume things will ebb and flow, which means when you're at an ebb, don't assume that the friendship is over because it's um, it might flow again, right? And I think similarly in our work process, when we're at an ebb, assume that that's part of the process rather than a sign that the process should end and that you've lost all your talent, right? Just being able to trust like, oh, I've done this before and I will do it again. And this might be a time of sacred rest. I think that's important. And I think what co- what coincides with that to make it work is like coming from a place of self-compassion and not self-criticism. Like, you know, I love you saying to yourself, like, I love you. I know you're great. I know you need a break right now. Right. And not being like, you know, you're nothing because you can't push through this writer's block, which is just mm-hmm. going to make it worse. So loving yourself, even in the hard moments is a way to not make the hard moments worse. And then I think the hard moments end up going away instead of sticking around because you've, you've kind of wallowed in the muck of it. Yeah. Love that. Okay. And what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? <laughs> oh, I think really. I maybe throughout this process felt like connecting with people was about being smart or being insightful or being funny or being charismatic. And I I realized while writing the book that it's actually about being loving and making people feel valued and making other people feel like they belong. Like that's what people really want in the people around them. So for me, I've been like really getting in touch with the fact that I'm very loving. I was born loving. I've always been so loving. And almost having to relearn that that is a skill and that is a strength. Mm, Okay, I love that. And what advice would you give yourself, your younger self? So say 10, 15 years ago. 10, 15 years ago, I was young. What would I give my younger self? I guess to spend time every day loving yourself. 
yeah, treating yourself like your kindest friend might Mm. and making it a practice. Yeah, that's great. And uh, Dr. Franca, do you identify as a feminist? Yeah, I do. What does that mean for you and in in your life right now or in your work or however you want to talk about it? It means, well, I think it means so many things, but the part that's been, you know, really on my mind lately is like the part about freedom from gender roles in some ways. And one of my biggest values is like authenticity and self-expression and making gender a place of, of play and exploration rather than a place of shame which obviously requires some, some work (laughs) for us to get to that place. And there's, you know, all of these structure, structural reasons why people don't feel free to be more feminine in an environment, for example, because it has all of these implications for their job success and stuff. Um, So, so obviously there's larger contextual things that have to happen for this freedom to occur. But I think ultimately what liberation would look like is us showing up in the world fully self-expressed. Okay. And last question for this superpowers for success segment. And that is, what are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? Hmm. I'm reading a few books, so I'm deciding which one I want to share. I think there's a book called Connected and it's written by a Stanford professor. And it's all about the research on connection and how it intersects with like bias and prejudice. And so Mm. he shares a lot of great research in there that, you know, continues to help me get better at understanding human connection in general. Yeah. Okay. I'm speaking with author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, Dr. Marissa G. Franco. And I just want to end with giving you the opportunity to say anything else you want to say about your book and your work, but specifically also, what do you hope to achieve like in the world with this work? What what do you hope happens? I hope that people could show up in the world in more healing ways for others. I think when we heal, we help other people heal through our very presence So more of that. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Franco, for being on the Well Woman Show today. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman Life, head over to wellwomanlife.com. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.